Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. to come to terms with new facts. You know, we know now that we should eat less and exercise more, but we don't see everyone doing that. On the contrary, we see obesity growing because it's just hard to believe that what you've always eaten is, in fact, bad for you. So this is a different change. Some people aren't having as much difficulty with it because some people are on the forefront when it comes to experiencing the effects of climate change. So we know people who live in low-lying areas, like the Pacific Islanders, they are really on top of this because, in fact, the ground is disappearing from beneath their feet. It takes longer for some of us to come to terms with that. But I think, you know, gradually we're doing it. Unfortunately, if we wait too long, then the effects may be irreversible. What is a sustainable population? Do we need to cut down on our patterns of consumption? And is population control the answer to the climate crisis? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two thinking types. One an art historian, the other a philosopher. Writers with tremendous instinct, passion and originality. American philosopher Sarah Connolly defends our moral obligation to generations both present and future. And art historian Aaron Rosen unpacks the uncomfortable relationship between art and religion in the 21st century. This is a show about some hard truths, cultural battles and why we need to live with less. But first, what are the environmental costs of reproduction and is having children an unlimited personal right? Sarah Connolly is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, and the author of Against Autonomy, Justifying Coercive Paternalism, published in 2013 by Cambridge University Press. In her introduction to her latest publication, One Child, Do We Have a Right to More?, Sarah writes, When we know that there have been false predictions in the past, and when a new prediction is one we really don't want to believe, we tend to take refuge in a general scepticism that allows us to avoid thinking about danger, in the same way, perhaps, that some people continue to deny the reality of climate change because it means we need to make inconvenient changes to our ways of living. Changing takes a lot of education and a lot of determination, but of course it is possible if we steel ourselves to do it. Well, this week I got a chance to talk to Sarah about One Child. Hello, my name is Sarah Conley. I am the author of the book called One Child, Do We Have a Right to More? I'm a philosopher, and philosophers often write about very esoteric subjects in ways that no one can understand. But my interest in philosophy is writing about things that are important in the real world and writing about them in a way that people can understand. And that's what I've tried to do in this book. According to all the studies, unfortunately, a rising population is a global danger. And given that, I think it's something we need to talk about. Sarah, I'm going to start off with a big wide open question, if a little bit controversial and not um, not the most comfortable of questions to be asking yourself. That said, do you think we've a right to have more than one biological child? I think at this point in time, no, we don't. I think that We are limited in what we have a right to do. And one of the limits is if what we want to do will do devastating harm to other people, then we don't have a right to do that. So we often say we have a right to free speech, but we also say we don't have a right to yell fire in a crowded theater because it just does too much harm. And unfortunately, and I wish this weren't true, but it is true, unfortunately, given the rate of population growth, having more than one child will have devastating consequences on other people. So you're arguing population control, is that it? 
What I would like to see, of course, is, is self-control. That is, the ideal situation where the people would choose to have only one child. And I think that's possible. If we had education, if we did actually talk about this and let people know about it, and if we made it easy for people to do, then I think a lot of people would choose this voluntarily. If we needed more, we could add incentives. You know, we could add tax breaks for those who have only one child. So it's a kind of control, but for the most part, the control we're looking for would be stemming from the people themselves. Why do you think, Sarah, that we as societies, um, as communities, why do you think we have avoided discussing the morality of reproduction and obviously the devastating impacts of unlimited procreation? Why do you think that is? It's an interesting question because, of course, we have been limiting reproduction. That is, uh, the global fertility rate, the number of children that a woman has in her life, has dropped a lot. And this is particularly true where people have access to contraception, so Western Europe, the Far East, and the United States. So it's not that we're unwilling to have fewer children. I think, though, that for political reasons, for reasons that come partly from religious tradition, uh, reasons that come from, in some cases, just fear of what some people imagine would be uh, a way of reducing how many children we have that, yeah, people just shy away from the subject. But you could argue that cutting back on consumption is a better way to do it rather than cutting back on children. It's a little bit more reasonable. I think, of course, we should cut back on consumption, those of us who can. But there are a couple of things to consider there. One is a huge amount of the world's population can't possibly cut back on consumption because they're already living below the poverty level. That is, they're living on $1.25 a day or less. So these are people who are barely making it, and you can't possibly ask them to cut back. You can ask those of us in the developed world to cut back. But even if we do that, and honestly, we haven't shown any signs of doing that, the evidence is it won't be enough. The International Panel on Climate Change says we need to reduce our greenhouse emissions from 45 to 70 percent. We can't imagine doing that really at the population we have, and we can't imagine it certainly at the much bigger population the experts think we're going to have if we continue the way we are. So yeah, cutting back on some consumption is good for those of us who can do it, but it's not enough. Do you think, Sarah, that we can live the good life by just having one child? And the reason why I'm asking you this is I know that you're a mother of two boys. So I'm just wondering what you say to that argument that, you know, the psychological benefits from any child having siblings, a brother and sister, are hugely impactful and that in some way you're taking from the child's potential. I mention that because I think a lot of people have misconceptions of what it would be like to have one child. Not everyone, because, of course, I know a number of people who have only one child, and their children are perfectly happy. What it means is that what we would do would be different. So, yeah, back when I was having children, I'm 63, so I was having children quite a while ago. And at the time I was having them, uh, we thought that, you know, having two, having, you know, reproducing the parents, just reproducing the replacement rate, that that was a responsible thing to do. And it seemed like a good idea. I'll have one, he'll have a friend, so the two of them will play. And they did that. But what we find uh, with the increasing number of people who have one child is that their lives are different, but their lives aren't bad. We have more interaction outside the home than we used to. And this is already true. You know, I was one of four children. My mother was one of seven children. They never thought of, you know, going to daycare or really having a lot of social life outside the family. Now we do. If all families had only one child, we would see even more of that. We would see more close friendships. We'd see interactions with cousins. We'd see interactions with friends. And we would base the social life around that. Sarah, I think a lot of people would disagree with you there and say that maybe 
having government legislation to limit how many children you have and so that you just have one child, that that is just basically unfair and that you can't morally defend that. What's your response to that? Because I grew up in the, in the 70s and we, on our TV screens and newspapers, there was always articles and news about China and what was happening with one-child families and the stories of forced sterilisations and forced abortions. What do you say to all of that? I think forced abortions and forced sterilizations are absolutely wrong. But that doesn't mean that you have a right to have more than one child. I think that when the government enforces a policy, and as I've said, I'm hoping we can avoid government enforcement, but if it did have to do that, there are appropriate ways to enforce it and inappropriate ways. So we think it's wrong to steal, but we don't think we should cut the thief's hand off. I think it's wrong to have more than one child, but I don't think you should have a forced abortion or a forced sterilization or any sort of bodily invasion. I think what the government needs to do in all these cases is find a way to express the belief that having more than one child at present is too dangerous for other people and to teach us that sometimes we have to give up what we would have liked so that other people can have the bare necessities. And I think as far as sanctions go, we know from experience that how many children people have is sensitive just to finances. That's why I think having an incentive where you give a tax break to people who have only one child or a disincentive where you have a tax penalty for having more than one child or, worst case analysis, an actual fine for having more than one child That would be sufficient because, as we see already, people are having fewer children as a response largely to financial pressure. In China, as you know, they've given up on the one-child policy. But many experts think that Chinese parents will continue to have only one child, not because they're afraid of forced abortions or sterilizations. Those won't be an issue, but because it just works better for them. I'm just wondering, though, Sarah, how do you do it all? Because we live in democratic societies, or at least we hope we and think that we live in democratic societies. But what you're arguing there seems to go against basic human rights in a way, because it's going against your right to privacy, your right to family, personal autonomy, right to religion. It cuts at all these important principles. It doesn't, though. I have a right to live my life the way I want up to a point. I have a right to live my life the way I want, but not if that causes devastating harm to others. So if I want to uh, set up something that polluted all the drinking water because that was good for me and bad for other people, we'd say, wait a minute, you don't have the right to do that. If I want to sell a lot of cars by claiming that they don't pollute when they really do, we'd say, you don't have a right to do that. So our rights are limited by the fact that other people have rights too. And one job the government has is to limit what you do if what you do is going to prevent other people from having a decent life. And this, unfortunately, is one of those cases. The United Nations says at the present rate, we're going to have 11.2 billion people by the year 2100. Now, right now, we're at 7.3 billion. So that's about 4 billion more people. That's a huge increase. No one thinks their life is going to be good. And the United Nations estimate isn't the most radical. Other people think it will be even higher. So you don't have a right to impose your wishes on other people that way. Yeah, the research that you present in the book is uh, is unbelievably frightening and the growth of mega cities and obviously, as you mentioned, their population growth. I'm wondering, do you think in some way we haven't fully digested the reality of the population explosion because we just can't fully come to terms with the consequences and what that means for us on a daily level, the inconveniences, the new ways of living that we'll have to just finally appreciate and implement. Do you think we have some form of inertia not to actually just face up to things? I think it's very hard to change. I think it's hard first to imagine that the world is going to change. We just 
have a limited ability to come to terms with new facts. And we see that in all sorts of contexts. You know, we know now that we should eat less and exercise more, but we don't see everyone doing that. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, we see obesity growing because it's just hard to believe that what you've always eaten is, in fact, bad for you. So this is a different change. Some people aren't having as much difficulty with it because some people are on the forefront when it comes to experiencing the effects of climate change. So we know people who live in low-lying areas like the Pacific Islanders, they are really on top of this because, in fact, the ground is disappearing from beneath their feet. It takes longer for some of us to come to terms with that. But I think, you know, gradually we're doing it. Unfortunately, if we wait too long, then the effects may be irreversible. Now, population control can lead to very dark and very grim realities like sex selection. And there is a public fear there that if you reduce the number of children in some way, that will lead to sex selection. So, for example, you'll have fewer baby girls than boys. And you see this in some countries around the world anyway. So how do you counter that prejudice against girls? And how do you not lead to further inequalities? Well, the cause of sex selection isn't uh, having a one-child policy. The cause of sex selection is basically, you know, inequality when women can't earn as much as men. So we see a lot of sex selection in India, but India doesn't have a one-child policy. They can have as many children as they want, but they still select for boys. Not all of them, of course, but, you know, there is a disproportion. Boys are selected for because they have greater earning power. Western Europe, on the other hand, we have a greatly reduced fertility rate, but we don't have sex selection because men and women are more equal. So it doesn't follow from reducing how many children we have that will get sex selection. And sex selection isn't eliminated by having as many children as we want. Sex selection comes from a different issue, which is sexism. It struck me as I was going through the book, Sarah, that when you're arguing moral rights, it's always going to be very, very difficult. It's always going to be very tricky. And you're, you know, you're, you put yourself up against it in, in some ways. But thinking about it, really, does it all come down to the fact that we have to societies realise that we're changing and we have a changed landscape and that we also need to change our appreciation of smaller families and maybe how we're living isn't working. Exactly. And that's why I think education is the first thing we need to do. We need to familiarize people with basic facts about population, with the fact that even at today's fertility rate, we're expecting a population of 11.2 billion people by 2100, 9.6 billion people by 2050. And, you know, our children will be alive then. They're going to be the ones suffering from this. So that, again, is why I think it's something we need to talk about and talk about in every possible context. Because then if people know what they're doing, I do think that we can adjust. Now, your book touches on West Africa, and I've traveled all over West Africa, and you bring up issues related to contraception and access to contraception. And you say that 222 million women around the world don't have reliable contraception, but would like to have. And you mention, as I said, that West Africa has the highest fertility rates. But how do you encourage population limits when you're dealing with cultural traditions and cultural praxis? Talk to anyone who's had a child. It's one of their most profoundest moments in, in their life. It's huge. So how do you take from that in some way and deny people those joys? Are there ideas on how they are living in the world? Well, as you've just said, there's an unmet need for contraception. And what that means is a lot of people want contraception that don't have it, including in West Africa. That doesn't mean you don't value having a child. But what it means is they would like to control when they have children and how many children they have. The unfortunate thing, not just for population, but for reasons of health, is that there are lots of women who just don't have access to contraception or, for that matter, other basic health care. And if people could plan their pregnancies, that is, if they had access to contraception that was, you know, cheap and available and easy to use, that in itself 
would result in some billions fewer of people by 2100, it's estimated. So it's consistent with loving your children and valuing your children and wanting to use contraception to decide how many children to have. Sarah, do you think we've an obligation to future generations? I know you quote the renowned, or you cite the renowned bioethicist Daniel Callahan from Yale and his seminal work on what obligations we have to future generations. Well, of course, because people who will come later, people who aren't born yet, are just as human as we are, and they'll have just the same needs. And if we say, oh, we're going to use up all the resources, we're going to live unsustainably and make those people suffer the consequences, that's the worst kind of inequality. It's, it's like racism. It's like sexism. It's, like, it's saying it's all about me and they don't matter. And that just makes no sense. So what is a sustainable population then, Sarah? That's a good question. And, of course, it depends on how we want to live. As you say, we started with talking about cutting back on consumption. And what a sustainable population will be will depend on what level of consumption that we we decide is acceptable. So I am not a demographer. I'm not a mathematician. And different people do look at sustainability and sustainable Mm -hmm. populations and come up with different estimates. But honestly, I think what we would need to do is start to cut back on how many children we have, And that would eventually result in a reduction in population. And then at that future peak time, I think people would decide, you know, that they've reached a number they can live with that's consistent with the consumption they want to engage in. Now, you bring up a whole range of very interesting economists in the book and also um, environmentalists. And one of them is Tim Jackson, who wrote Prosperity Without Growth. Can you talk to me how he's what he's offered to the debate? Yes, I think his book is great. And it's funny because in a way it makes an obvious point, but it makes an obvious point that people haven't talked about enough. So here's the situation. A lot of people say we can't cut back on population because we need a constantly growing population to fuel the economy. They say the economy thrives on growth. So we need to sell more and more cars, for example. In order to sell more and more cars, we need more and more people. And what Tim Jackson points out is that given a finite planet, there's obviously only a limited amount of time you can do that for because you're going to run out of the basic materials that you're using to to make your cars or to fuel your cars. So an infinitely growing economy on a limited planet just isn't a feasible idea. So he says, look, we need to rethink the economy sooner rather than later. We could keep up with the constant growth until we reach the end of our resources and everything crashes. Or, he says, we could think about this now and try to come up with an economy that doesn't depend on constant material growth. Mm. And that's why he calls it prosperity without growth. We want an economy that makes us happy, but that doesn't depend on buying more and more and more objects. At present, we have an economy that depends on buying more and more objects, and all the evidence is it doesn't actually make us any happier. Your three-car household doesn't make you happier than your two-car household. Your huge mansion doesn't make you happier than your small house. So we need to realize that and cut back and actually be happier, but with fewer things. So basically what you're arguing is that we need to face some grim political truths and adjust our ways of living. Is that it? I'm arguing that we are going to face those grim political truths and we are going to adjust our ways of living. And we can either wait and do it the hard way where we do have a crash with lack of resources and a population that cannot exist happily, which in turn leads to civil strife and war. Or we can face those truths now and have a controlled change. Lastly, I just want to ask you about the work of Bill McKibben. He has really advanced our understanding of how we're living and what we're doing and what we need to do. You quote him in your book and it's a very powerful um, message 
where he says biologists guess that the result of a rapid warming will be the greatest wave of extinction since the last asteroid crashed into the Earth. Now we are the asteroid. So where do we start? Again, I think we start by education. And I think we also start by making it easier for people around the world to control how many children they have. I think, as I've said, there are 220-odd million women who would like access to contraception and who don't have it. We could help with that. It's not actually that expensive. We could make contraception available. It is politically unpopular in some places, including the United States, but we could do it. We know that change is possible. Ireland just accepted same-sex marriage. (laughs) Now, when I was young, the idea of same-sex marriage, no one would have imagined that was possible. But changes do happen. But as I say, they start with education, that we need to do something, and then you proceed with making it possible to do that thing. Sarah Connolly. One Child, Do We Have the Right to More? is published by Oxford University Press and retails for in around 30 euros. Now, I can't say this book is an easy read, but what I can say, it raises some very interesting questions. Okay, let's take a break to some music. Great to have your company this evening. Okay, we're going to stick with the theme of provocation and debate and meet with art historian, writer and teacher Dr Aaron Rosen from King's College London. Have you ever wondered why art and religion is typecast as mortal enemies and how big a problem is misperception in the global art world? Well, in art and religion in the 21st century, Dr Aaron Rosen writes, when you enter the world of art, you are, like it or not, entering the realm of religion. Consider some of the world's most famous works of art. The Parthian marbles, the Last Supper, the Blue Mosque. And it becomes clear just how deeply the history of art has been coloured by the history of religion. With politicians, media, museums and artists all benefiting to a greater or lesser extent, it is no surprise that the stereotype of the blaspheming modern artist has had such staying power. Ironically, the only real losers in this equation may be the principal parties themselves. Art and religion. Dr Aaron Rosen is a lecturer at the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at King's College London and the author of The Hospitality of Images, Modern Art and Interfaith Dialogue, Imagining Jewish Art and Religion and Art in the Heart of Modern Manhattan. Well, over the weekend, I gave Aaron a shout from his home in London and asked him, what does 21st century art have to say about religion? Well, I think 21st century art, like art of, of previous periods, has a tremendous amount to say about religion. And I think it's interesting to look especially at the art of every specific period and think, how is it that it captures something about the zeitgeist of our era? And how does it answer or at least pose religious questions that are really germane to believers, but also atheists in a given period? Aaron, why do you think it is that contemporary artists are always seen as in somewhat opposition to religion or they're pitched against it in some way that there's this big almost moral debate between what contemporary artists are doing, whether they're visual artists, sculptures, whatever it is, as against 
the religious themes and the religious debates that are brought up. That's the problem is that it's a very sexy, imagistic, really appealing image to have the, the kind of swashbuckling artist out there making trouble for religion. But really, I think the reason that narrative gets set in, in stone in many ways is because it really, one, one reason is simply financial. I think it, it behooves many artists to create that narrative or at least not, not disavow it because it's an opportunity to, to make the headlines. It's a story people want to write about. And I, I often get asked to comment on blasphemy, and I always say, blasphemy is interesting, but it's really interesting. It's the way artists aren't blaspheming, the way they're helping religion to explore its own themes. So, you know, and the other, the other thing is that it works to the advantage, of course, of museums and also reactionary religious thinkers. So it becomes a way to dismiss contemporary culture as having no relevance by saying, look at these artists, what they're doing isn't interesting at all. And that's what we see in an example like My Sweet Lord by Cosmo Cavallaro, which is Jesus made out of chocolate. And to me, that has a tremendous amount to say about how we think about the Eucharist, but it's easier for some cultural critics to just say, nah, it's not art, or it has nothing to say about religion. Yeah, and that particular um, example that you've given there caused quite a controversy and the exhibition was then eventually put down and I think the rodents at the installation. That's right, they gave it a good nibble so we had to actually resurrect the body of Christ when he wanted to put the work on exhibition again. It's all very ironic, isn't it? One thing that really jumps out from your book is that art is essentially very political and it's politicians who are benefiting the most from the cultural debates on what is appropriate and what isn't. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, that came across very clearly for me when I was reading some academic studies of the Sensation exhibition and why it was controversial in London, but why especially it was controversial in Brooklyn. And Mayor Giuliani didn't seem to have a problem with it when his office was informed about this exhibition earlier on. And then he realized, hey, I'm running against Hillary Clinton first. Senate. What about sort of making this something where I can try to paint her into a corner, as it were, and try to make her seem anti-Catholic for supporting the arts? And actually a strategy which ended up thankfully backfiring against a good mayor, but a very good example of how acutely political things can become. Now, Aaron, this evening if I popped out of this studio and walked down Grafton Street and asked a couple of people who were passing me by, what are the top five pieces of art you've ever seen or what are the most famous? I would guess in some way I would get a very white Christian and I think, as you put it, heterosexual gaze on art. Mm, And that you profile tremendous Islamic art, Buddhist art, Jewish art unbelievable stuff going back hundreds hundreds of years, yet everything seems to be so white and so Christian. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting, though, is that a lot of these canonical works can't still be constrained by that, right? So even though the majority of these works that we think of as canonical are produced by white men, what we're seeing now that's particularly exciting in the late 20th, but especially the 21st century, is people from other ethnic or even religious backgrounds saying, you know, actually, I can own this image. I can make it part of my tradition. And it it uncovers new levels of meaning in this work. So I think it'd be a mistake if we tried to dismiss work by the sort of dead white European males as not having relevance. But what's needed are other voices to sort of actually rescue and redeem the other meanings that might be coded within or or potential imagined meanings that might come out of a work like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, which we've seen imagined with Jesus being played in Yo Mama's Last Supper as a black woman, or Tracy Emin and many of her friends getting drunk and acting out the Last Supper, or a version by a Chinese artist who imagines a Judas as a kind of pseudo-capitalist figure. So, or Yinka Shonabari doing The Last Supper as if it's all bankers in the financial <laughs> crisis. So there's so many different points of relation to these wonderful, iconic works of the past. But do you not think you can't look at the history of art without somewhat dealing with the history of religion because they collide and complement in so many different ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you can't see the history of Christianity without it being colored by art. And really, that remains true for many other traditions. And I think that's one of the things that I'm hoping to raise in in this book and in a future book, is to say that we always think of peoples of the book, but really we should be thinking of peoples of the image as well when it comes to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and of course, Hinduism and Buddhism as well, which have oftentimes in the study of these traditions or in the popular awareness 
awareness of them. People always think, well, what's the real text? What's the most important part? And actually, the lived material experience and the visual experience of these faiths is just as important as the, the written word. Now, you talk about modern museums and art spaces as cathedrals of modern life. And I'm just wondering, depending on your spiritual or religious persuasions or not, do you think in some way that art can bring on some form of spiritual experience or some form of spiritual engagement? Yeah, I mean, I definitely quote a source who does talk about museums as cathedrals. And for me, I think the probably the case is a little bit more ambiguous. When people tend to pose that idea, it's as if the church is somehow being, or the synagogue or the mosque is somehow being supplanted. And I really don't see it like that. But I do think that there are possibilities for religious experience in galleries. And certainly the idea of, and the, the sort of premise of the, the white cube is one of a distilled sort of pure experience which has a religious sort of dimension to it as well. But I think the other thing to think about is that the religious art, the great religious art that's being made today, doesn't have to be in museums, and it can be located anywhere. Some of the profound works that I look at in art and religion in the 21st century in my book is environmental work that you have to go out and find, and it's the art is a way of returning you, as it were, to the cathedral of the world. To, to open spaces to the environment. So I think there's a lot of different places we can look for religious art, and it's important not to be constrained on the one hand by museums or on the other by churches, which are still great purveyors of religious art as well. I was struck by the fact that as I went through the different chapters in your book, that no matter how many cultural wars there are between religious institutions and artists, mm. that they are completely and utterly in relationship and they need each other because one inspires the other and one creates a conversation between the other. Right, and I think it's I think that's a nice way to put it. And it's good to think of uh, the relationship between art and religion as one that's fraternal. I mean, you can you can fight with your siblings, but at the end of the day, you realize that you have some underlying genetic material. And in this case, I think art and religion are are two bodies which try in some ways to answer related questions uh, and certainly have need one another as conversation partners more often than not. Now, Pablo Picasso was a famous atheist, yet he managed to use a lot of religious symbols in his art. Mm. And so have a lot of other artists. It seems to be quite a regular pattern through the years. How do you explain that? Yeah, there's, it's interesting. It's a very good book by Jane Dillenberger, who just recently passed away, who, who wrote about Picasso's religiosity in art, even though, as you said, he's a, an avowed atheist, um, was. <laughs> and what's interesting is that he grows up in a culture that's so thoroughly imbued with religion that it's part and parcel of the way he thinks. So here you have an artist who explicitly doesn't want to paint crucifixions at a time, and yet he feels drawn to them through the lens of Matthias Grunewald, and he finds Finds himself sort of repeatedly drawing over and over again the Isenheim altarpiece as he puts it to conquer it. And you can say, oh, this has, it's just about art. It's just about his engagement with art history and trying to do battle in a very Picassoid way with the old masters. But there's something in that habitual repetition of Christian imagery, which I think you can't just write off. And sometimes even the jokes that he has in his paintings, and I think a lot of his paintings are very funny, are religious puns. So you have his Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is Famously, an image that was so controversial because it was of a bordello, and you had naked prostitutes wearing with faces that look like African masks, and yet the still life at the bottom with a slice of melon looks exactly like the crescent moon. And so you have this naked prostitute standing on a crescent moon who becomes an image of, of a Madonna as visualized in the book of Revelation. So Picasso almost can't help himself from being involved in religion. And I think that's what we see with a lot of artists like Kazimir Malevich is someone who explicitly wanted to inaugurate a new era, but how did he do it? His black square on a white background, which would seem to be a repudiation of the icon, when he first displays it, he puts it in the place reserved in Russian homes for icons. And when he, has, when he designs his own funeral, he wants his black square to be processed around with his body as if it's an icon. So again, even when you see, have something that looks like a repudiation of religion, sometimes it can be a new way of engaging with it. And would you get the same themes or certainly similar patterns cropping up with, let's say, Buddhist artists or certainly artists from Buddhist countries or artists from Arabic or Muslim countries who maybe have left their religious institutions or religious structures, but are still drawing upon some of the kind of classic images from their 
previous tradition into their art and using it in some way? Or is that just symptomatic of Christian artists or Christian traditions and artists coming from Christian countries? No, I think that's a great question. And, uh, and, I, and I really see the same dilemmas running across religious traditions from my study of 21st century art. And I think that Islamic art or Muslim artists who maybe who want to be seen perhaps as a Muslim and an artist, or just as Jews sometimes want to be seen as, yes, I'm a Jew and I'm an artist, very few people want to have, want to own that label of saying, I'm a Muslim artist, I'm a Buddhist artist. And yet, I think there's a, a whole history of tremendous engagement there that's going on across religious traditions. And Idris Khan is a very interesting contemporary artist who's coming out of a Muslim background, and he's doing a work like his photographic images of the Quran, where he, has, he lays on top of one another with visual software scanned pages of the Quran. So he's able to scan every single page and layer them on one another into a single image. And that becomes something that active repetition itself has a prayer-like ritualistic dimension to it at the same time as he's not producing specifically Islamic art and probably wouldn't want to be seen in that way. Now, art and religion in the 21st century ask some unbelievably big questions. And I actually started laughing when I read some of them because it's impossible to give a complete answer to it or even to properly tackle some of the questions you ask. And it struck me that if you, depending on what, let's say, pub or cafe you're in and you just ask this a question to somebody, you could get a punch in the face. Like you say, you question, <laughs> what is the difference between challenging tradition and rejecting it? Or yeah. what is the difference between the sacred and the profane? It's almost impossible to actually ask that and actually deal with that in any way and give it concise answer, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, those are frighteningly, terrifyingly gigantic topics. And, and what's interesting to me is that I write different types of books. And I, I'm working on a children's book right now. I'm work, I have this book, which is written for a, a very broad general audience. And I write the kind of scholarly volumes that also are doomed and destined to collect dust and be read by three people. What's interesting, I think, is that sometimes taking my work out of just a purely academic audience allows me to ask the kind of questions that are, are that big because I think we're frightened of them oftentimes in purely academic writing because they're unanswerable. And yet at the same time, these are the kind of questions that we should be talking about, you know, at the pub, you know, over dinner. These are the things that matter. And so just because they're unresolvable doesn't mean we should stop asking them. Now, one of the things I find really interesting was that the Vatican displayed, I think, about two years ago at the Venice Benale, and they use a theme of Genesis. Did you Mm. go and see that? No, I'm afraid I didn't. One of my doctoral students from Bologna uh, went and reported back to me on it diligently. And actually, the current Vatican Pavilion, my colleague, Professor Ben Quash, was involved in helping them think about which images and which artists might be included under under their rubric. And now they're looking at the word became flesh. And there's a the most recent Vatican Pavilion has a tremendous work of art, which is has the the skins of, of animals creating a sort of a, almost like a a dwelling place or a chapel-like experience. It's really gratifying to see the Vatican stepping up to the challenge that was actually issued by Pope John Paul II to really engage much more deeply with contemporary art. And I think that's only continuing now, and and particularly under the kind of visionary leadership that we're seeing from the Pope, is that there's a greater desire to engage with contemporary culture in all of its permutations. Can I ask you, if art in some way allows us to see the other, do you think that it can actually engage on or create an interfaith dialogue or engage in that because if we're seeing the other projected at us through different types of art surely it can do that as well then oh absolutely and i think that's to my mind, one of the most productive ways forward for interfaith dialogue. I always say to people that we assume with interfaith dialogue that the thing we should do is all get in a room and discuss Holy Scripture, or we should discuss the Israel-Palestine problem and what to do about it. And I always say, no, you have to begin with things that are much more open, where people's opinions are much less set. And that's why I think, as a rejoinder to programs like Scriptural Reasoning, which I see as having a great value of getting people to look at Scriptures together, I like to think of doing something that's about bringing people together to look at art and where the outcomes aren't as predetermined, where people are sort of free to say, well, actually, I think it might be this reading or it might be that one. And, and sort of practically speaking, one of the outgrowths of this book is that it's 
created a really strong desire in me to push my work into a popular sphere. And so I've curated an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in London, where I'm asking artists and people of the public from any different background to lend works of art or artifacts that they can put alongside uh, works from the Jewish Museum's permanent collection to show that the Jewish story just doesn't have to be contained and only relevant to Jews. Uh, So it's the first time that we've done things like shown a Quran in the Jewish Museum. And then the other project I have going on at the moment is I'm preparing a Stations of the Cross exhibition at 14 locations around London. And one of the things I'm really excited about is that this will be a stations that will involve works created by Muslim and Jewish artists, as well as Christian artists and atheists. And my goal is that this will really be a sort of pilgrimage for Christians, but also a pilgrimage for art lovers of all faiths. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the proof in the pudding, but I think that there's some, some wonderful opportunities yet to be explored for interfaith discussions based around art. Well, one of the images that really jumped out on me from your book was the Last Supper, and you have a lot of different versions of the Last Supper and lots of biblical um, scenes, whether it's Garden of Eden and so on. But it was of Israeli soldiers as mm. in the Last Supper. And that really caught my attention and got me really thinking on so many different things. It brings up so many questions. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic work of art by Adi Ness. And there you have an artist, I think, who really has the sensibilities of a painter. He's he's very much influenced by painters like Caravaggio. And you can see that in the careful way in which he sets up a scene, which is a group of, I think it is around 14 soldiers in a mess hall. And immediately we have the, the sort of cultural imprint that we say, that looks like a Last Supper with them all facing around. Because how often is it that people eat all on one side of a table, right? So as soon as we see that image, we know we're looking at something evoking the Last Supper. And what happens when we, when we begin to pin down who are the different figures there? And what does it mean to have the central figure of this young Israeli soldier and sort of framed by a kind of a halo of the desert sort of scrub in the background? What does it mean to think of him as a Jesus-like figure? Will it be that he sacrifices himself for his comrades? Is that what's going to happen? Or is it something that's a critique of the Israeli society? Is it about how is it that sacrifice becomes ritualized just as it becomes, as sacrifice becomes remembered and ritualized in Christianity? Is there a sacrificial ideology in Israel? What does it mean to be in a state which, which often, often finds itself in conflict um, as it does at the moment? So I think it's a highly relevant work. And what's interesting to me there is just as many Jewish artists have done before, like Mark Chagall, you have a Jewish artist who's looking to the resources of Christian iconography to frame a problem that's a Jewish problem. And so that's where you see that real capaciousness, I think, in religious iconography, that it doesn't have to just be about one faith. It can be transmuted or transmogrified and, and moved into other contexts. And that's one of the things that you have with that another wonderful work that I, I show in this chapter, which is uh, Zhang Huan's Ash Jesus from, from 2011. It's really but, something. It's really quite something, isn't it? Oh, it's this gigantic work that he makes with the same figure of Jesus. Jesus from Leonardo's Last Supper, but here you have him as a towering sculpture made out of compacted ash, which has been collected from the incense burned at Buddhist temples. The wonderful connections on the one hand to Buddhist tradition, but also to Ash Wednesday. And I think that kind of pluriform approach, being able to speak to multiple religions at once, that's the, the really represents the best of religious art today. Yeah, and there was another one that kind of struck me, but not in terms of aesthetics, but it was Salvation Mountain. Leonard and Knight. I thought that was really interesting. Now, Aaron, you quote René Girard, who says that religion shelters us from violence, just as violence seeks Mm. shelter in religion. Do you agree with that? I think that what I really like about that quotation is it shows this fundamental ambivalence about the relationship between art and religion and violence. And I think, and that's what we see in some of the works that I discuss here from the, from the 21st century, is that violence is too easily pinned down, I think, by critics who are sort of very prominent atheists who just say, you know, really, if we got rid of religion, there'd be no more conflicts and wars in the world. And, and that, I think, is fallacious and, frankly, a bit silly. I think some of the great conflicts 
conflicts in the world have been motivated by atheism or, or misguided interpretation of religion as much as anything. And yet at the same time, we can say that there certainly is a legacy of violence within scripture and violence between religious communities. And so really people are always going to define themselves at each other's throats. And maybe, maybe what the Bible does is not so much incite that as give us a language to interpret and understand that kind of conflict. And so I'm a big fan of trying to use the Bible, not just to identify a problem, but sometimes to find a solution as well. And that's where I think we see some wonderful works engaging with violence in in the Bible by contemporary artists. Last question, Aaron. Do you think that if it's 100 years time and you're compiling art and religion in the 22nd century, do you think (laughs) there will be such protests on artists all over the world, whether they're in Africa, South America, India, Europe, or do you think politicians or the Vatican or Islamic leaders will be getting so hot in the head with what how artists are engaging on spiritual or religious issues or themes? Do you think there will be such cultural wars and cultural battles on it all? That's a, just a fantastic question, and I, I feel somewhat foolish not to have anticipated in the conclusion to my book. Um, you ask a fundamental question, which is, are things the way they are now, or will they always be so? Which is a great <laughs> question in, in the history of religion as well. I think on the one hand, we don't ever get away from controversy, right? I think we're, we're really wired to be entertained by this and to seek out controversy. And if you look at the art of the Christian past, no one was more revolutionary than Matthias Grunewald or Caravaggio and the kind of models that they chose and the flayed image of, of Grunewald's Christ or Caravaggio modeling people after the, the street people that he, he found around him. So I think that was controversial contemporary art of its time. And so if you were to ask that question, if you were to say, do you think art will always be that controversial um, back in the 17th century? Maybe uh, maybe they would have said no, but they would have been wrong. We continually have, have controversy. So I don't think that will die. But I think what will be interesting is whether we have controversy based around the same things. And I'd like to think that we're getting away from this narrative of religion and art as enemies and seeing contemporary artists of any era as inherently iconoclastic. And so what I'm hoping my book does a tiny bit to help is to say, let's get beyond that narrative of just blasphemy and indignation. And let's think about whether something else might be going on. And my hope, and sort of a modest hope for the next century, might be that we get better at asking those more subtle questions about religion and art. That was Dr. Aaron Rosen from King's College London. Art and Religion in the 21st Century is published by Thames and Hudson and retails for in around 50 euros in hardback. Now I know that's a fairly hefty price, but trust me, this book works as an excellent crash course or a sophisticated rough guide to the contemporary art world. Now the images alone are outstanding, provocative in parts and really quite something. Well that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with some insightful words from the great British philosopher and historian Bertrand Russell, who once wrote, Do not fear to be eccentric in opinion, for every opinion now accepted was once eccentric. Good night. to 108.